Uh, if you could open your Bibles this evening, let's open to First uh, Chronicles. First Chronicles, we're going to look at chapters 3 and perhaps even chapter 4 this evening. All right, First Chronicles. Uh, last week, we were looking at chapters 2 and... You know, it's interesting to, to look at a book like First and Second Chronicles and to get excited about it because uh, very few people get excited about genealogies. But I'm hoping that as we've been going through this, that it's been encouraging you because we, we've been stopping at certain names and we've been talking about their significance within the genealogy of Christ. And, uh, and it really helps us to un- unpack really what I think the, I believe the Holy Spirit is trying to show to us. And one of the things is when we look at uh, you know, the line of Judah and we look at Jesus and we look at King David from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, remember there was an enemy who was in the garden and we know his name is Satan, correct? And uh, you recall that after Adam and Eve had sinned, God had uh, pronounced judgment upon not only uh, Adam and Eve, but also the serpent. And one of the things he said to the serpent was that, um, that the seed, speaking of the seed of the woman, which is an, uh, a not-so-veiled reference to Christ, that Satan would, uh, or the seed of, uh, of Satan would basically bruise the heel of the woman's seed, but the woman's seed, speaking of Christ, would crush the head of the serpent's seed, which is obviously speaking of uh, the devil and all of his hordes. He would crush the, the kingdom of evil once and for all. And we know that in the uh, crucifixion, Jesus, in a sense, his heel was bruised. But one of the things that the enemy either knew or didn't care to know about was the fact that after uh, Satan incited these men and women to crucify Jesus, that on the third day he would rise. And to much, much to his chagrin, he was uh, defeated, and his sentence is yet forthcoming. And I'm looking forward to that day. How about you? Yeah, but uh, last week, if you remember, I, I labeled the message uh, the demonic contract. And yes, when I say contract, I mean a hit. Like when a mafia goes after an enemy of theirs, they put a contract on their head, which means that they hire someone to kill them. And the devil has a contract out on the line of Judah. He has had. And now that Christ has already come, which he tried to thwart and was unsuccessful, now Satan's tactics have changed somewhat, and now he's going after the people of God. And if he can just get the people of God, whom God loves, even if he can't take their salvation away, if he can just ruin their witness, if he can just, and even for those who don't know Christ, if he can destroy them, the apple, the thing that God really loves is people. And if Satan can grab as many of those as he can to take them down with him, he is satisfied. And see, that is the heart of evil. And thank God we don't have to understand the heart and the mind of Satan. I'd much rather know the mind and the heart of God. Amen? So I'm not worried about Satan. I'm more worried about what God's will is and his thoughts and what he wants to, be, what he wants to have done. And so we looked at this demonic contract, and we looked at it through Genesis 3.15, which I just mentioned. All along, Satan has been, once he found out there was a seed of the woman, which is a contradictory in terms, isn't it? Because there is no seed of a woman. There's a seed of man because women have eggs, correct? I mean, we've all been through biology. <laughs> the seed of the woman is a reference to the virgin birth because Joseph, Mary's husband, had nothing to do with Jesus coming about. You know, remember the angel appeared to Mary and he said to her, that holy thing that is growing in you is from the Holy Spirit. And so Joseph had nothing to do with it. But now, Satan has and always will be fighting against that. Seeing that he lost that battle, he wants to take down as many as he can with him. And so as we get into 
chapter 3 and perhaps chapter 4, we're just going to stop on a few things and discuss a few things that hopefully will just open your eyes to this, this contract. <laughs> and one of the things about Chronicles that we have already discussed, but just briefly I'll share again, is that the purpose of it is not to give us a history of every single thing. It's, it's specifically to get us from Adam and all of the mass of humanity going down through you know, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Remember, as we looked at it already in, in the, last, the first two chapters, the, the chronicler, who we believe is Ezra, was quickly getting us from Adam and then to uh, Abraham and then Isaac, you know, Abraham and then to you know, Noah, and then from, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, uh, Adam to Noah to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then finally to focus on Shem to get us to Abraham. And then to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then from Jacob, getting us quickly to Judah. Because it was from the line of Judah that the prophecy of the coming Messiah would come. Remember when Jacob was on his deathbed in Genesis 49, verse 10. And he said, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. And it's for, and, and until Shiloh comes, you remember that in Genesis 49, verse 10, and then the promise that, Dave, that God gave to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 through 16, I think it was. The Davidic covenant that from his seed, from his own body, would come forth the Savior. Certainly David, but then an everlasting kingdom. And he even mentions it three times, you know, emphasizing the fact that it's an everlasting kingdom. So it, it didn't just stop at Solomon. It went all the way through Solomon, all the way down through Zedekiah. And then there was a break. And then finally Christ being born into the Virgin Mary, who was also from the line of Judah, as well as Joseph, who was also from the line of Judah. And so tonight we're going to see that one of Satan's tactics is if he can't get someone to destroy the Jews, and we've seen this throughout history. We know that, um, remember Haman and Esther, he tried to destroy the Jews. Pharaoh tried to destroy the Jews. Many people have tried to destroy the Jews. And even in the 20th century, Adolf Hitler in the 40s, 1940s, exterminated over 6 million Jews. And Satan's tactics are still going. He still wants, he's just bent on destruction. See, we don't understand a mind like that. We don't. You would think that if he knew, the Bible says, and, and, and believe me, Satan knows the word of God better, I think, than we do. He just doesn't, he chooses not to obey it. He knows his time is short because the Bible has pronounced this judgment upon him. He's read to the end of the book of Revelation. He knows that his doom is sealed and it's coming. And all he can hope to do, and this is the madness of darkness, if he can just get a few years, a few months of having the whole world worship him, which he will get, God will allow it for a very short season. If he could just do that, it would be all worth it. That's the twisted mind of the devil. He wants to take down as many as he can. But we're going to see that if he can't get someone to destroy the Jews, he will incite them to sin and thus bring God's judgment upon them. And this will become apparent very quickly. But remember, this even happened in the life of Israel in Numbers chapter 22 through 24. Remember when Balaam, or Balak, the king of the Moabites, he, he reached out to Balaam, the son of Peor, and he asked uh, you know, for him to curse the children of God. And God told Balaam, don't you dare curse the people that I have blessed. And so Balaam tried, and, and then once God really cornered him, you know, on the donkey, and the donkey spoke to him, think of that, the lunacy of that. When a donkey talks to you and you actually talk back to it, you know you've really gone a little too far. You know, when the donkey speaks to you and you actually have a conversation, then you know you should probably just go in a padded room somewhere. In one of those straight jackets, you know, it's about time to do that. And so he, uh, God wouldn't allow him to curse him. But he did tell Balak something really important. He says, well, I can't judge these people. I can't curse these people, but here's what you do. You get some of those cute Moabite girls. You get some of those to come out and flirt with the Hebrew boys. And guess what? Just let nature take over. And that's exactly what happened. 
It doesn't tell us in numbers anywhere that that's what happened, but Revelation tells us. Remember when Jesus wrote to the the seven churches, and one of them was Pergamos, and he said this to them. He says, I have a few things against you because you you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. And that's exactly what Balaam did, and he brought judgment upon God. He, He allowed God to bring judgment upon his own people. He allowed Satan to incite the people to do those things. And then God was left to bring judgment upon them. Do you remember when in David, in 1 Chronicles, it says that Satan stood up against Israel and moved David. Literally, the word is incited him to number the people of Israel. David, in his later latter years of his reign, was resting and, and thinking, how big is my kingdom now that I've got everything in order now? All the ducks are in order now. And he started numbering the people, and Joab says, David, what are you doing? You know this is wrong. You, you, your, your victories aren't going to come because of the arm of your flesh. They're going to come from God. And, and, and David was just relentless, and he says, no, go number the people. So Joab does, and in the process of doing that, he gets his number. But then God brings judgment upon David, and he gives him three choices, Remember? And, God bring, and David chooses one because it's quick and it's over in three days. But several thousand people in Israel, in Jerusalem, were killed by a plague until David purchased that hill right next to the, uh, where the temple would be now, but it wasn't at the time, on Aruna's threshing floor. Remember, he built an altar and he sacrificed to God and God withdrew the plague from Israel. But it was Satan who incited David to do it. Chronicles tells us that in chapter 21. And so, if God can't destroy you, he will incite you to do evil and then God will have to judge you. Do you see how that works? And we're going to see that tonight in this genealogy because we're going to take a little fork in the road when we get to a certain place and you're going to see just how crafty the devil is, but how faithful God is, even under really blight circumstances. Yes, how crafty the devil can be. But then, have you ever tried, uh, do you, let me ask you a question. Do you think it would be wise to play chess with God? I love playing chess, and I've learned that you've got to have several moves ahead. When you're playing an opponent, you're already thinking three or four moves, and if you're really brilliant, even more than that. And I'm not so brilliant, so I only got four or five moves. And you're thinking ahead. If they move here, I'm going to do this. And it's all, you know, an offense. But try playing chess with God, who knows the end from the beginning. It's madness. And yet the enemy of our soul, Satan, still tries. You'd think that he would give up. He knows the power of God greater than you and I. Do you understand he knows the reality of who he is, and yet he opposes him. That's, to me, that's insanity. That's mental illness on a great level. So tonight we'll see a similar thing in the life of Jeconiah. Remember Jeconiah, he was a son of Jehoiakim. Remember at the, toward the latter end of Judah's kingdom... Josiah, one of the greatest reformer kings Israel had ever had, remember after his passing, he reigned, I think, for I think, I think 31 years, and then he had four sons, Johanan, and then Jehoiahaz, and then Jehoiakim, and then finally Zedekiah, and, uh, and so we know that Jehoiakim, or Jehoiahaz, reigned after jo- Josiah died, and then Jehoiakim reigned for another 31 years, I believe it was. And then immediately after that, Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin, otherwise known as Jeconiah or Coniah, or Jehoiachin is also his name. He's got three or four different names. He was on the throne for three months. And then he was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar. And, and then after he was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar, Zedekiah, who was Josiah's son and Jehoiachin's uncle, 
began to reign. But what's interesting is that you know Jehoiachin or, or Jeconiah, he was only on the throne for three months. And he did something that God says, I am going to be done with you. And he pronounces a curse upon him. And we will take a look at that too. But let's just read through the first 16 verses of chapter 3. And then we're going to go back and look at a few things. So notice in verse 1. Now these were the sons of David who were born to him in Hebron. The first was Amnon. By Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, the second, Daniel, by Abigail, the Carmelitess, the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Jeshur, the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith, and the fifth, Shephathiah, by Abidal, and the sixth, Ithream, by his wife Eglah. These six were born to him, to David, in Hebron. There he reigned seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned thirty-three years. And these three, or excuse me, and these were born to him in Jerusalem. And you might want to underline these now, because I'm going to have you underline them later, so you might as well do it now. Shimei, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, four by Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. Also, there were Ibhar, Elishema, Eliphalet, Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishima, Eliada, and Eliphalet, nine in all. And these were all the sons of David, besides the sons of the concubines, and Tamar, their sister. Tamar, their sister. So let's go back to verse 1 here. Notice that it talks about Amnon. Remember, Amnon was David's firstborn And Amnon was the one who forced his sister-in-law, Tamar, who was also Absalom's sister, Absalom being another son of David. And so there was already incest within David's family. And this was all a result, um, I believe, and I think the scripture proves it out very clearly, that because of David's disobedience and because of his affair with um, Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah, the Hittite, that these things came upon David. And yes, there are consequences for sin, aren't there? David is a poster child for consequences because even though God had forgiven him, and don't ever misunderstand God, my folks, because even if you do something wrong or or maybe it's something innocent that you fell into, you were blindsided by something, maybe you thought you were strong and really you were weak and something happened and you sinned against somebody or sinned against God, which you're always sinning against God first and foremost, he, he can forgive you if you confess, but also understand that there are consequences, aren't there, still for our sins. Even though God has forgiven us, even though he has cast our sin as far as the east is from the west, which, as you know, never meets, there is consequence. There are consequences for our sin. And David knew this. And Amnon was the one who forced his sister-in-law, Tamar, because she was beautiful, who was Absalom's sister, who was from a different mother. He forced her and and really raped her. And he's... um, he slept with her, and afterward he shunned her, he hated her. You can read about that in Second Samuel 13. And then in the same chapter, Amnon was ultimately killed by Absalom out of anger. So now David, his whole family is in a consequence that God had told him, and we'll get to this shortly, as a result of those things that David did and the things that he ignored and was disobedient to, these things are happening in his family. Number one, incest. Number two, murder. One of his sons murdered his firstborn son. And notice also in this verse one, it talks about a man, the the second son, his name was Daniel. Um, His name is also called Chiliab in 2 Samuel chapter three, verse three, but they are one and the same. And his mother's name was 
Abigail the Carmelitess. Uh, anybody remember Abigail from 1 Samuel 25? Remember when we were looking at Abigail? Remember when David was on the run from Saul and he was out in the middle of the field and there was a, a man from the Car- Carmel who was very wealthy and all David and his men wanted was just something to eat and this man refused and David was going to go up and... Um, take this guy out because I mean, it was just unheard of not to have that kind of hospitality in the Middle East. And the guy was a scoundrel. In fact, his name was Nabal, which his name literally means fool. <laughs> the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The word fool in the Hebrew is Nabal. Just that, that was his name. He was a fool. And Abigail, Nabal's wife, interceded and saved the man's life. And once he realized how close he was to death, he had a heart attack and died. So David married her. David, does this sound like the young and the restless? Or the, the, as the world turns, or as I call it, as the stomach churns, or the blinding light? Remember those sitcoms? Those Anyway. So... In verse 2, back in our text, it says, Now the third son was Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Jeshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. Remember, Absalom was the one who forced a coup and caused his father David to go into exile. His exploits you can read about in 2 Samuel 13 through chapter 18. We've looked at all of these things in depth over the last uh, year or so. And Adonijah, later in David's life, when he was old and dying, this son uh, attempted to uh, usurp the throne, and uh, it was only stopped by Bathsheba, David's wife at the time, and Nathan the prophet. And, um, and Solomon was placed on the throne, uh, ultimately, and Solomon had Adonijah killed for his treachery. But in verse 3 it says, Now the fifth son was Shephathiah by, by Abitel, and the sixth Ithream by his wife Eglah. And these six were born to him in Hebron, and there he reigned seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned 33 years, a total of 40 years, uh, 40 and a half years. Um, and, these were, and these were born uh, to him, to David in Jerusalem. Notice, and I have you underline this, and we're going to come back to it because I want to finish this short little section that we have, and we're going to come back to verse 5. But notice, underline these four names, Shimea, Shimea and Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, for by Bathsheba, that's just another variant of Bathsheba's name. You'll notice in the Bible, especially when you're going from Samuel and Chronicles and other places, you have to really keep track and, and have a, a, a Bible dictionary or something because a lot of times it's speaking of the very same person and you might not know it. And having that information really does help to understand what is going on. But sometimes there are these little variations in spelling Okay, so um, that is Bathsheba that it's referred, referring to. And, um, and you can even look in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, and you'll see these same names with very minor variations on one or two of them, okay? But don't let that throw you. That's just the way uh, these things are. So verse 6, and also there were Ibhar, Elishema, and this is... This Elishema is the same as Elishua in 2 Samuel 5, verse 15. It's one and the same person. Again, just a spelling variant. And then finally, Elephalet, and then Noga, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishema, Eliada, and Elephalet, nine in all. Now, here in Chronicles, in this chapter, verses 5 through 8 specifically, uh, notice it says nine in all, but there's actually 13 here recorded. <laughs> and so there's a recording here in this section in verses 5 through 8. There's two names that you won't find in the same list in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. Now, you may have to write that down or listen to this again and stop it and go back and look at it. But if you look at the names, there's in this list here in verses 5 through 8 here in Chronicles, there's two more names. And uh, it's not a big deal. It's just something to be aware of. Uh, one is Noga and Elephalet, another Elephalet, actually. So there evidently was two. And and just in case you think that might be a happenstance or just a, a mistake or something like that, 
this same list that we see here in Chronicles in verses 5 through 8 is the same exact thing that you'll see in 1 Chronicles chapter 14, verses 4 through 7. Now, and, and all you're going to see is some spelling variants on a couple of the names. And so, because as you go through the Word of God, and the reason I bring these things up to you is not so much to bore you with the details. I really like this kind of stuff, and that, that, that makes me a little weird, I guess. But I really enjoy these kinds of things because it causes me to really dig in and search and find out the reason why. And, um, and it's important for you to do that too because someone will come along and they will bring up one of these things and attempt to stumble you, and then you're going to get discouraged and think, well, the Word of God is just full of errors. And, uh, you know, there's translational problems, there's no doubt, and those things have been figured out. But the, the original scrolls, writings, they're flawless. They're inspired. They're inerrant. The Bible, in its original form, is an inerrant. And never lose that. Never let anybody pull you off of that rock of inerrancy and inspiration. Because once they do, they got you. And then your faith stumbles. Okay? Now let's go back to verse 5. This is where we're going to have a little bit of fun. <laughs> now notice, uh, it says, And these three, these three, or, these were born, excuse me, I looked at these and thought three for some reason. And these were born to David in Jerusalem. Shimei, Shimea, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon, four by Bathsheba, the daughter of Amiel. Now, um, remember I was talking about Satan's conspiracy against Judah? We've been talking about it for two weeks now. Well, I want to show you something. I'm going to leave this up on the screen. Oops. I'm going to leave this up on the screen for a little bit. Oh, did you turn the projector off? Okay, well, I'll wait, I'll wait until, I'll just let it, uh, we'll just keep going until it comes back on. Uh, this, this will help you, I think, if, you, if you're looking at it while I'm talking about it. Anyway, um, still not on, huh? Okay, I guess I'm going to have to go without it. Try that. It, it's worth it, trust me. <laughs> there we go. I'm going to leave this up on the screen. And I've got copies of this. I just put this together this morning. It looks like this. On that back uh, uh, thing back there on the shelf, there's copies of this. Feel free to grab one and look at it and put it in your Bible and look at it as you go through, okay? But I think this will help you. And you've heard a lot about this. Uh, perhaps, or maybe you've heard about it at some point, and I just want to spend a, a little bit of time on this, because Satan does have a conspiracy against Judah, and I believe this is one of those times that Satan tried to infiltrate the line of Judah specifically, and, um, and we're going to see that it wasn't, I mean, the, the kings of Judah certainly had uh, things that they had done to warrant God's judgment against them. But, and we don't know what it was with Jeconiah. We don't know specifically what things there were that God says, okay, I'm drawing a line in the sand and I'm done with you, with your line. And, and we'll read that in just a few moments. We don't know what it is. But Satan came against Jeconiah. He's been coming against Judah for a long time and finally God has enough and he pronounces a curse upon the line of Judah at Jeconiah specifically, or Jehoiachin, or Coniah is another, another name. And you can see it there under Matthew's column there. Now, let me just talk to you about this really quick. You remember, we, we were just looking at First Chronicles 3, verse 5. It's up here on the screen. And these were born to him in Jerusalem, Shimei, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. Has any, any of you heard of Shimei, Shimea, and Shobab? Have you ever heard of them? Probably haven't. 
because there's really nothing in the scripture about them. We barely know anything about Nathan. This is not Nathan the prophet. This was Nathan, a son of Bathsheba, probably born after Solomon was born. We don't know anything about those other two, but remember Nathan and Solomon because those two men, you're going to find that in the genealogy of Matthew and then the genealogy of Luke, it's going to take a turn. And there's a reason for this. Turn with me to Jeremiah 22. Actually, turn with me to Jeremiah, uh, Prophet Jeremiah chapter 22. And we're going to look at verse 24. And then we'll look at why. <laughs> First, we're going to look at the curse. And then we're going to get into Matthew and Luke and take a look at this ourselves. I'm going to try and make this as non-technical as possible, um, even though it can be. But look at with me at Jeremiah chapter 22, beginning in verse 24. God tells Jeremiah he has some things he wants to share with Josiah's kids, meaning the, the ones who are going to reign and sit on the throne after Josiah died. And that would include Jehoiahaz, it would include Jehoiakim, it would include Jehoiachin, otherwise known as Jeconiah or Coniah, and it's also going to be referring to Zedekiah. But God had a special message for Jeconiah or Coniah or Jehoiachin, same name. And this was it. He says, as I live, says the Lord. Now, he hasn't done this to any of the other kings prior to this, other than maybe Saul. He pronounced a judgment against him. Now, I may be wrong in this, but the, but the Bible makes it very clear. There's something about this king uh, that God really despised. And, and he was only on the throne for um, a short time. As I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, or Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Though he were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life, and into the hand of those who face you fear, in those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out, and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die." But to the land to which they desire to return, they, there they shall not return. And then there's a quote here. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol, a vessel in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they did not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Thus says Jehovah. Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days. For none of his descendants, underline that, for none of his descendants shall prosper sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. I think God meant what he said. So what he said is, no one from his line is going to sit on the throne. And the devil and all of the hordes of hell are having a party when they hear that. We finally thwarted the Messiah through the line of Judah, right? Because Jesus wouldn't be born for hundreds of years after this. So they're thinking we got it. So God placed a blood curse, if you will, on Jeconiah. Now, how many sons did David and Bathsheba have? I mean, other than Shobab and Shimea, we're looking at Nathan and Solomon, there's, there's two other sons that we, we know that are in the, in the running for this, and, and, and they are because I know this ahead of time. So, uh, so let's take a look at this. Go, go with me now to Matthew chapter 1. And like I said, take that sheet with you. It'll, it'll help you understand what I'm getting at. Matthew chapter 1. Now, if you notice, we're not going to read all of the first 17 verses of Matthew's gospel, of chapter 1. 
but I did summarize it in this, what's up here on the screen, and I'll just look at it. It's basically a genealogy of Jesus Christ going from Abraham all the way down to Jesus, and it's going through Joseph's legal line, his, loyal, his legal, regal, royal line of Judah. And it's going through Joseph. Now, did Joseph have anything physically to do with Jesus' birth? No, right? He didn't have any, he was just a caregiver. So we're looking at his regal or his royal line, his legal line to be on the throne of David. So let's, and because Joseph and Mary were both from the line of Judah, let's look at that. So it says, you know, you can, you can read the genealogy, but just look at the screen here because it goes down, it starts with Abraham and then ultimately it gets to Isaac, it gets to Jacob and then to Judah and then to David and then underline this, Solomon, underline that in verse 6. Find verse 6 and circle Solomon. Circle Solomon. Because this genealogy goes through the line of Solomon, from Abraham all the way down through, the, through Jesus, but it goes to Solomon. And then from Solomon, we all know the record. We've been looking at kings and chronic, or, you know, first and second kings. We've read all this already. You know, Solomon gives birth to Rehoboam, Rehoboam, and then on and on and on, till you finally get to Jeconiah, which you can see down in verse 11. Look down at verse 11 in Matthew chapter 1, and you'll see Jeconiah's name there. So he's in the line of Jesus. But God, we just read in Jeremiah 22, verse 30, that God had placed a blood curse on him that no one would reign from his line. So now we have a real problem, right? Well, it's not a real problem because if we look at Luke's gospel, turn with me to Luke's gospel, chapter 3. This is exciting, isn't it? Even if it isn't, just nod your head and say, this is really exciting, I can't wait. Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. And and this genealogy is interesting because it goes back even further. It goes from Jesus all the way back to Adam, and it goes in reverse order. So this is a little bit weird. Um, Matthew's gospel goes from from Abraham and then to his sons, and it goes down in, in a way that we can understand in our writing in our understanding, but when we get to Luke's gospel, everything is in reverse. It's just a different way of labeling the same genealogy, but going back even further to Adam. But I want you to notice a couple of things. Number one, look at verse 31 of Luke chapter 3. Look at verse 31, because it goes in reverse order. So, um, you know, at the end of chapter 3, it says the Son of God and then the Son of Adam. Not, not the Son of God speaking of Jesus, but you see at the very bottom of chapter 3, it says the Son of Adam. And then Adam uh, begat Seth, Seth begat Enosh, Enosh begat Canaan, all the way up. And so as you go from the bottom upward, you're actually progressing through time. Does that make sense? It's a little bit different than Matthew's gospel that starts from the top and goes down through time as you go down, okay? Now look at verse 31 and circle the word Nathan. Because, and, and look at that verse. It says, The son of Mela, the son of Menon, the son of Metatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. And it goes on. But we know that David also had a son of Solomon, didn't he? So, What is Nathan doing here instead of Solomon? Well, we already looked at Solomon's line, didn't we? And God pronounced a blood curse on one of his descendants of that line, Jeconiah. So the hordes of hell are rejoicing, and God's saying, oh, you think you got it, okay. Well, I'm going to get it done through Mary's line, (laughs) I'm going to get it done through Nathan. And notice, when you, when you look at word, the word Nathan here, and then you continue to read up as if you're going in, a, in, in the opposite direction, you'll find that that is where the genealogy takes a turn. So when you look up on the screen and you see that, and now this is the bloodline of Mary. And I'll describe why we believe it's Mary. And it's conjecture a little bit on whether it's Mary. But it's a, a different bloodline altogether. Instead of going through Solomon, through Matthew's gospel, there's a blood curse, Uh uh-oh, problem. 
And God said what he meant. There's not going to be a man on the throne coming from Solomon's, you know, his genealogy. And he pronounced the hex, if you will, on Jeconiah. So he's got to go through Nathan, who is Solomon's brother. And that's what we see in Luke's gospel and the genealogy there. Now, when I said Mary, notice up there in verse 23, It says, now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, notice in parentheses, this is so huge, as was supposed the son of Joseph. Do you know what Matthew is doing there? He is promoting and protecting the idea, the doctrine of the virgin birth. He didn't leave the chance that Joseph might be the father of Jesus. Do you follow me? He put as was supposed, and it's in all the different versions. But notice, the son of Heli. The son of Heli is actually Mary's father. Mary's father. So it would be Joseph's father-in-law, his line, because he was from the line of Judah as well. So you see that the one genealogy from Matthew goes from Abraham to Jesus, but through Solomon there in black on the screen... There's a problem because of the, the blood curse on Jeconiah that's given to us in Jeremiah 22.30. But then, all is not foiled because in Luke's gospel, now the actual bloodline through Mary's line goes, and it's through Nathan that we see this other son of Solomon. And now the line continues on with Jesus there. And so, why do I bring this up at this moment? And again, take one of those sheets when you leave. And look at it again and read through it. And incidentally, you might want to put parentheses around a couple of verses. Right where it says the son of Heli, from right there all the way down through verse 27, where it says the son of Joannes, the son of Risa, right at the end of that line, put another parenthesis because that whole chunk is nowhere given to us anywhere else in the Bible. But it's from the line of Nathan, going back to Mary's line. Now can you see, (laughs) Satan is always had it out for the line of Judah. Remember in Genesis 38 when he got Judah to not pay attention when his son had died and he was supposed to give uh, this woman, his uh, heir, his firstborn son. When he died, he was supposed to... uh, have a, uh, another, his widow was supposed to, his next son was supposed to raise up seed to his brother. He, he decided he didn't want to do it. God killed them both. And the other son didn't, you know, Judah just forgot or whatever. And remember, Tamar had to dress up as a prostitute and she had relations with her father-in-law, Judah. And Judah gave birth to Tamar or to uh, Perez and Hezron. Satan, going back, he's always inciting. And and that's the reason I brought up this whole idea of inciting when we first started, how Satan incited this person, incited this person, moving them to do this, moving them to do that. His whole intention was to stop the Son of God from being born and even to stop David from being born because it was in him that all of the promises of Judah and Jerusalem were tied up in, in the world for the Messiah, And he tried really hard to corrupt that line. And he did. And he was rejoicing until Luke wrote the genealogy. (laughs) Until it was known, hey, uh, Solomon wasn't the only son of David. So was Nathan. And that's something that Satan could not see. And I want you to notice something, too. In Matthew, go back to Matthew's gospel. Actually, while you're in Luke here, look at who's Joseph's father-in-law is Heli, right? Now, you can read some different versions of the Bible, and it puts this, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. Uh, the son of Heli, the, the word the son of, can literally mean a, uh, a son-in-law. It can mean a son-in-law. And, um, but... Notice it says Heli here, but if you go back in Matthew, Matthew's gospel, chapter 1, verse 16, it tells us who Joseph's biological father was. His name was Jacob or Jacob. So two different men. One was Jacob or Jacob was 
in, in Matthew 1.16 was Joseph's real blood father. And then here in Luke's gospel, chapter 3, Heli is actually Joseph's father-in-law because it's Mary's father. Follow? So Mary's line goes through Luke's gospel. Joseph's line goes through Solomon and through, in, in, in the gospel of Matthew. Everybody okay with that? This is really something to hang on to. And, and you'll have to go through it a couple times. Read, grab a sheet and look at it and listen to the message again. Look at it and you'll see what I'm talking about. And it'll, it'll, it'll open your eyes to what Satan's plan was, how God thwarted it, because you can't play chess with God. He's always 18,000, 18 million steps ahead of you. You cannot win against God. Amen? And this is just all glory to God for this. <laughs> I love it. The word of God always foils the attempts of the enemy. He always does, and I love it. But no, notice, notice back in our text now, back in uh, Chronicles chapter 3, it says, These were all sons of David besides the sons of the concubines and Tamar, their sister. Now, Tamar, David's uh, sister, um, don't confuse this with Judah and Tamar. That was many years prior, okay? So don't confuse them. But even though David had many wives and the scripture tells us that he did, it doesn't mean that God condoned the behavior. And Solomon, David's son, remember, had a thousand wives, 700 wives and 300 concubines or some, something like that, 300 wives, seven, it doesn't matter, a thousand women in his life. Right? And do you think that that was a good thing? Does Solomon's life play out that that was a really good idea? Now, there's nothing against women, okay? This is nothing. This is not a, 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 this is not a slam on women at all. But Solomon, and, and, and he learned it from his father David. David had a number of wives. And Solomon really outdid him. And it got him into trouble. And Solomon in his later, latter years began to worship the gods of these women and it, tore, it made his relationship with God. It ruined him for a season. He came around, but it ruined him. But what does it tell us in Deuteronomy uh, you know, 17? It says, verse 14, it says, When you come into the land, this is God speaking to Moses to tell the children of Israel, when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you and you possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You will surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not, listen to this, these are the things kings ought not to do. He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself. And here is why. Lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. And he, and he goes on, and then at the end of this, in verse 20, he says, that his heart may not be lifted above his brethren, that he might not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, that he might prolong his days in his kingdom, and he and his children in the midst of Israel. So David had many wives, and, and the infighting that that had caused by various means and his sin with Bathsheba brought about these consequences. You know, with Amnon and Tamar and Absalom killing Amnon, and then Adonijah being killed. And then Absalom being killed. All of these things. And then David being incited by the devil to number the people of Israel, bringing another plague upon the people of God. And you remember, it records for us in 2 Samuel, and I bring this up because these are things that were brought upon David because of his behavior. Do you remember after Nathan the prophet had come to David and basically busted him for having that illicit relationship with Bathsheba and then killing her husband when he wouldn't go in unto her, trying to cover up their pregnancy? He has, David has Uriah killed, and, um, and finally God comes and, 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 and says to him, him, um, you know, finally David says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to, to David, the Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. He deserved to die. However, here it is, because 
By this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, and also the child who was born of you shall surely die. And then Nathan departed to his own house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. So their first child died at the hand of God. But then they had children after that. Solomon, they had Nathan, they had Shobab and Shimea. And only Solomon and Nathan are the ones in the genealogies, right? Two different lines. We looked at that. Let's go on in verse 10. And I think we'll, we'll stop at the end of, of this chapter. Let me go back here. We'll, we'll get down, we'll go down through the, through, we'll get down through chapter 3. So it's interesting to me that David and the prophet Nathan, they had such a friendship, even though Nathan told David the truth about his sin. And you know, there's something about a friend who's willing to tell you the truth. Do you know that Nathan the prophet was very good friends and very like this with David, okay, like this. And when David had a child through Bathsheba, what was the name of one of his children? Nathan. The one whose line Jesus ultimately comes through in in, in the Gospel of Luke, right? He loved Nathan the prophet so much, even though Nathan by that time had already told him this, David had already begun to experience the consequence of his sin, and yet because this man did not hold back telling David the truth, even as a friend, and there's a good thing for us, when you've got a good friend, you tell them the truth. If you love them as a friend, you tell them the truth, even when it hurts them, even when it wounds them to the core, you must tell them the truth. Otherwise, you are not a friend. Don't lie to your friends. They will get over it eventually when you tell them the truth, especially if you tell them in love. There's a key. Tell them in love. People can tell when you're just sticking them with, sticking them with the knife or when you really love them. They can tell the difference. There's all kinds of nonverbal communication going on when you talk to somebody and they're picking up on everything. It's like a, you're sent, you, you know this to be true. When you're talking to your boss and you're going in to ask him for a raise, you can tell by his body language before he even opens up his mouth and says, no, you, can already, you already know the answer. Tell the truth. Otherwise, don't claim love. And Nathan told David the truth. And he respected Nathan. He loved him, he respected him, even though it took him right to the mat. And he loved him so much that he named one of his sons after him. I love that. I love that. So, verse 10, let's go on to the rest of the chapter. So it talks about the family of Solomon. Solomon's son was Rehoboam. Now, as we go through this list, this is the line that Matthew's gospel took us through, isn't it? Through Solomon's line, all the way down to Jesus. But that line was cut short because of the blood curse of Jeconiah. Follow me? And all these kings we've been reading about in First and Second Kings. So Solomon's son was Rehoboam, Abijah his son, Asa his son, Jehoshaphat his son, Joram his son, Ahaziah his son, Joash his son. And in between Ahaziah and Joash was the brief reign, it's a six-year reign, that Athaliah, who was Ahab and Jezebel's daughter, who actually married Joram, a king of Judah. By the way, never marry a woman whose parents were demon worshipers. Not a good idea. In my Bible, I got, in all caps, bad idea. (laughs) Yes, so Athaliah is inserted in between Ahaziah and Joash. She reigned for six years until Jehoiada the priest got everything together and, and overthrew her. But anyway, going on to verse 12, Amaziah, his son, Azariah, his son, Jotham, his son, Ahaz, his son, Hezekiah, his son. Remember Hezekiah, a reformer king, a great king. Manasseh, his son, he was a horrible king. Ammon, his son, not so good. And Josiah, his son, what a great king, probably one of the best, if not the best, other than maybe Solomon or David themselves. And the sons of Josiah were Yohanan, who we don't know anything about. He probably died as an infant, the firstborn. The second was Jehoiakim. The third was Zedekiah. And the fourth was Shalom, who was actually Jehoiahaz. 
And remember, it was Jehoiakim, his second son, he gave birth to a young man by the name of Jehoiachin, who we also know to be Jeconiah or Coniah. And that is the one where the blood curse was upon in the line of Matthew. So the sons of Jehoiakim, notice, were Jeconiah, his son, and then Zedekiah, his son. Actually, this is a different Zedekiah. We know Zedekiah was the the last king of Judah. This is not him. So Jeconiah was also called Coniah in Jeremiah 22-24, and he's also called Jehoiachin in 2 Kings 23-31. I mention these, not so much that you're going to write these down, but you can if you're fast enough, but you can also listen to the message again. Or you can come up afterwards, and I'll give you these, okay? But Zedekiah, remember, not this Zedekiah in verse 16, but Zedekiah was the last king of Judah whose sons were killed before his eyes, and Nebuchadnezzar had his eyes gouged out, and he was taken to Babylon, remember, when we looked at that. And then notice, now in verse 17, it goes into the family of Jeconiah. So, and the sons of Jeconiah uh, were Asur, and this word, Asur, is, is actually not a son. It's actually, uh, should be translated... Um, the descendants of Jehoiachin, the captive. And then it, there should be a colon, and then Shealtiel, his son. And you can look in the NIV or the ESV for First Chronicles 3, verse 17, and you'll see that this phrase, Aser, or this name, it's, it's actually not a proper name, okay? What it means is captive. And what it really means is the son of Jeconiah, the captive, Shealtiel, his son. So he's the firstborn, if you follow me. But you can look in, uh, in the NIV or the ESV, and you can find that that's exactly how it's uh, rendered there. Um, and that's important to know. And, and, uh, and then going on to verse 18, and Melchiram, Pedaiah, Shenazar, Jechamiah, Hoshamah, and Nebadiah. And these were the seven sons that were born to Jeconiah while in exile in Babylon. Because remember, Nebuchadnezzar took Jeconiah into captivity, and it was in Babylon that Jeconiah had these seven sons. Not one of them sat on the throne of David ever, because God had told that that wouldn't happen, and indeed it did not. And then he goes on. The sons of Pedaiah were Zerubbabel. Yes, this is the Zerubbabel that came back from Babylon to rebuild the temple when Cyrus gave the Jews permission to come back into Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the walls, etc. So the sons of Pedaiah were Zerubbabel and Shimei. The sons of Zerubbabel were Meshulam and Hananiah and Shalomith, their sister, and, um, and Hash, uh, Hashubah, Ohel, Berechiah, Hazadiah, and Jeshub, Hesed, five in all. And the sons of Hananiah were Pelatiah and Jeshaiah, the sons of Rephaiah, the sons of Arnon, the sons of Obadiah, and the sons of Shechaniah. The sons of Shechaniah was Shemaiah. The sons of Shemaiah were Hutush, Igal, Beriah, Neriah, and Shaphat, six in all. And the sons of Neriah were Elionai, Hezekiah, and Israkam, three in all. And the sons of Elioniah were Hed, uh, Hodaviah, El- Eliashib, Pelaiah, Achab, Yohanan, Delaiah, and Anani, seven in all. Seven in all. So I think we're going to stop there. There's a lot there. <laughs> and... Um, Now, as we go through Chronicles, we're going to move a lot faster. I I keep saying that, and I really mean that. Sometime soon, we're going to go a lot quicker. Um, Next week, we'll probably cover at least two chapters. And and I'm only going to stop a few times, because when we get into the the tribes or the, the sons of Jacob... They're going to take up pretty much the balance of the next several chapters until we get to around chapter 10 or 11, and then we're going to see David uh, again, and then we're going to see um, some of the similar things that happened when we were in First and Second Samuel. And uh, it's going to be like we're back in First and Second Samuel again, going through the lives of the kings. And we won't spend as much time, because we've spent a lot of time in First and Second Samuel already, but we'll be covering very familiar ground when we get into chapters 11 through the rest of 
First uh, Chronicles and Second Chronicles. It'll be a really wonderful ride. We'll get beyond these uh, genealogies, which I understand could be kind of dry. But don't you agree that even as we've been looking at this, it's been really exciting. And, and just to see, you know, these four sons, two of them we don't even know about, but Nathan and Solomon. And Solomon's line in Matthew's gospel is cut short through Jeconiah. And that's the, the legal line through Joseph. And it proves that even though Joseph had nothing to do with it, just as his, because he was David's father in a sense of, you know, stepfather, or, uh, stepfather, yeah, caregiver, that even he, even though he had nothing to do with it, he still is in the line of Judah, in that line. But it was through Mary's line, through her father. Heli, and then down through Nathan, going all the way back to Adam. That is through Mary's line, the bloodline, the actual line where Jesus physically had contact with human flesh because he resided in Mary's womb when the Holy Spirit planted that seed in her. It had nothing to do with Joseph. But her line went straight through. And the devil was rejoicing, thinking he had stopped the whole thing. And God's going, ah, watch this. Have you considered Nathan? Who, who's he? Oh, you don't know who Nathan is? Hmm. Very interesting. God is in control. God is in control. He will not be thwarted. And that gives good uh, very comforting for me and you, isn't it? We don't have to worry, folks. If you're a believer in Christ, you've got nothing to worry about. You know, as you look around the world and you see things falling apart, again, take comfort because this to me gives me even greater comfort in the confidence of my God and your God that he cannot be thwarted. His, he's all-powerful. Do you understand that? Remember when he told in, in John chapter 10 when he says, no one can pluck you out of my hand. Nothing in heaven above or earth beneath. That means in, the, in hell or in heaven, there's no one who can take you out of the palm of God when you are in the palm of God. But my question to you tonight is, are you in God? Are you in Christ? Because if you're in Christ, you've got nothing to worry about, even though the devil has schemes to, to take away your witness. All he can do is make you stumble and fall. And as a believer, you're still going to go to heaven. And we, we, we confess those sins. Certainly we do that. But we're going to heaven. But for the person who doesn't know Christ, oh my goodness, how great jeopardy they are in. And if you are one of those people tonight, or today, that is not in Christ, you've got everything to worry about. Whatever you're doing, stop. If you're listening to this message and you're driving a car, Pull over to the side of the road and say, God, forgive me. I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful woman. There is so much evidence here. It, it's speaking volumes. Give your heart to Christ. He loves you. He's got a great plan for your life. Let's stand together and let's give him thanks. <laughs> Lord, we just come before you tonight. We thank you for um, these passages, Lord. N never knew that we could have so much fun in a genealogy. Of course, I may be the only one having the fun. And there's a lot of laughter in the room, so I'm very comforted by that. But even still, Lord, it's so wonderful to know that even in the midst of this, you've got these jewels, these things in your word pointing us to your majesty, to your wonder, to your omniscience, your omnipotence. Lord, you are sovereign and wonderful. You are a great and glorious God who alone deserves worship and, and honor and glory. And Lord, all power belongs to you, Lord. You are the great king. No one can touch you. No one can even attempt to touch you, God. And you look out for your people. You look out for the Jews. You look out for even your church. Lord, you comfort us and you watch over us. You send angels to take charge over us, those who are the heirs of salvation. And here we are. Lord, would you continue to do that 
and help us in these days that we live to keep our chin up, to keep our eyes focused on you, Lord, to keep our nose in the book, in the Bible, in your word, how we love you, Jesus. And we thank you and we praise you. Let's sing this last song. I'm just going to lead it to you. I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. May it be a sweet sound. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. We do love you, Lord. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless.